This podcast was recorded before the global pandemic. While the world looks a lot different today, we believe this content remains valuable for helping organizations move forward and emerge stronger. Trust. That is such a powerful word. When you've gained the trust of your customers, your colleagues, and pretty much everyone in your life, the future knows no bounds. And what happens when you break that trust? Depending on the severity of the grievance, you may never recover, both personally and professionally. I'm Mary Hayesweer, and today on the Workday Podcast, we're talking with Francis Fry and Ann Morris on how to build and rebuild trust. Francis is a professor of technology and operations management at Harvard Business School. Her research focuses on how leaders can create the right conditions for their organizations to thrive, and trust is a very big part of that. She also advises executives on organizational transformation, including embracing diversity and inclusion. And she has served as Senior Vice President of Leadership and Strategy at Uber. Anne, who's also joining us, is the founder of the Leadership Consortium, which prepares women and people of color for senior leadership. And Anne and Francis are co-authors of the best-selling book, Uncommon Service, and working on their second book due out in June 2020, titled Unleashed. And finally, Francis and Anne are married and have two beautiful sons. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure. It's great, great. to hear. Okay. Well, so let's start with you, Francis. Your work sounds fascinating. Tell us, how did you get into this work? So the work on trust began when I met a, a woman named Emma Dench, who is a classic scholar, and she and I were working on a task force, and we loved, well, we hated the task force, but we loved each other. <laughs> like so many task forces. <laughs> uh, but we loved each other, and we committed we would do something together. And then she called a little while later and said, let's teach together. And I thought that would be a very big problem because I don't know anything from the classics. And when she would say we, I noticed that she meant about 400 and earlier. So it didn't even seem that we shared <laughs> the same. 480. Yeah, so it didn't even <laughs> seem that we shared the same time. But I said, great. Let's. And so we taught a course called Leadership Lessons from Ancient Rome. And, and what Emma would do is curate the texts we would read the ancient text, and then we would come up with the modern treaties of it. And so the way that we look at trust, which is, has authenticity, logic, and empathy, really builds off Aristotle's logos, pathos, and ethos. And while he was talking about persuasion, we can show in the context of where that works for trust. Interesting. And learning from history, too. Learning from history. Right. Okay. So it feels like trust is a, a real hot-button topic right now in today's environment. Would you say it's more so now than it was 10, 20 years ago, or do you think it's always something companies are struggling with? It appears to me I hear it much more, so it's in the pillars of organizations more often today. It's like diversity and inclusion, I hear a lot more trust, and I think because the the evidence of it being broken is just more clear and our intolerance for it being broken is more clear. So when we say we stand for trust, what we're really saying is we are no longer standing for broken trust. I think one of the things that's changed in the last decade is that the stakes of breaking trust have gone up. Part of that is the, our communication tool. The decisions we make are broadcast in a way that they were never broadcast before. So that's one of the issues. I think also just as as we evolve as a species, I, I just think our sensitivity to not trusting each other, I think, 
gets more and more honed over time and particularly in the business world as the intimacy of our relationships with each other and and how and the strength of that bond matters so much in our ability to do things together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And I want to talk about your book coming out in just a moment, but before we get there, let's talk a little bit about the components of trust. Francis, empathy, logic, and authenticity. Can you tell us a little bit about those as the components of trust? Sure. So authenticity, it, it begins with, if I'm listening to you, do I have a sense that it's the real you speaking? And if you put on a facade of some sort, you give a message that you don't really believe in, I and the rest of the world can sniff that out super quick. If you're not authentic, we're not going to trust you. Similarly, you can be as authentic as you like, but if the logic that you're giving us doesn't make sense, we're not going to trust you enough to follow you. So authenticity is the real me. Logic is rigorous about what I want, what I'm trying to tell you, and enough transparency in that rigor so I can be guided by it. And then the last one is empathy. And empathy is, do you believe I'm in it for you? There are many people who are authentic, they have logic, but they're also megalomaniacs. And it's, it's for them that they're doing this. But when we are, it's the real me, great plan, in it for you, trust just follows so magnificently. When you break any one of them, trust comes to a complete halt. So how receptive are business leaders to that idea of the components that you just outlined? Completely. We, we do an exercise um, on their personal trust diagnostic. It takes them about 60 seconds to identify the one area that mostly gets in the way for them. And then I give them a technique for how to overcome it. The good news in the message is that for most people, their challenges with trust are their challenges in communicating empathy, authenticity, and logic. And so there are, there are things that we've observed and, and worked with with teams over time where you can fix these things once you have an awareness of where, in our language, where you're wobbling. So let's talk about the work that you two have done together, both your past book as well as the one that's coming up. There is obviously a very strong connection between trust and building a diverse and inclusive workforce. Is that what your your book gets into, or can you talk a bit more about that? The book is titled Unleashed, uh, An Unapologetic Leader's Guide to Empowering Everyone Around You. So we really start with this idea of empowerment leadership. And in our view, empowerment starts with trust. So if you want to do anything with a group of people, which allows you to extend your impact beyond what you could do on your own, you need a foundation of trust. You need to be able to trust each other. So that's where we start the story. The, the definition of leadership that we introduce in the book is leadership is about making other people better as a result of your presence and making sure that impact lasts into your absence. So we divide it into two parts, presence and absence. And, and the presence part, trust is essential to everything you want to do with the, the human being in front of you. And so we spend quite a bit of time talking about what happens when trust falls apart and what can you do to rebuild it. Sounds really interesting. Francis, you also served in a leadership position at Uber. I started officially on in June of 2017. And for those of that remember the press at that point, it looked like things were going pretty badly for it. I actually started working with the organization about six weeks before that to see if I, uh, if I was a good fit, if the way in which... I investigated, brought up true things, if the way in which I taught, if if we just worked well together. I went out there feeling like I was 
probably not going to like very many people, if I'm going to be totally honest. I read everything in the paper. It didn't look good. I got out there, and I liked the vast majority of people. These were really good people that were embarrassed, ashamed, looking for help and doing the right thing. So when I started in June 1st of uh, 2017, by the end of June, the organization had separated from, in retrospect, not even two dozen people. Um, But it was enough that we got to go forward and go on our way to be what I still believe can be a magnificent company where, listen, my grandmother is driving her last car Mm -hmm. and she's a fiercely independent woman. And if without Uber... She has to rely on favors of friends and family, and that just makes her a shadow of her former self. For the grandmothers around the world, I'm very pro Uber. <laughs> well, when a company does make a mistake, when it gets beat up a bit in the press, and it has to rebuild that trust, what are your recommendations? What, what's the best thing a company can do, and what's the worst thing it can do? Well, if you notice with authenticity, logic, and empathy, there are three very different diagnoses. So make sure you're really clear about the diagnosis. With Uber, they had a trust issue between them and the drivers, between them and the riders, between them and the regulators, between them and the shareholders. Don't try to solve it all at once. Each one of it, you can get down to where's the authenticity, logic, and empathy wobble. Every single one of them can be overcome. And they've made amazing strides in overcoming them. So don't try to solve all of it at once, but not with one solution. <laughs> with all of the micro-solutions. Anne, do you have anything to add? I mean, one of the amazing things about the diagnostic is it works for both leaders and for companies. One of the patterns that we see among companies right now is the uh, a wobble on empathy. And so if, if you know you have a trust problem and you're just starting to think th- through this, that's where we would advise you to start is is think about empathy. What are the relationships? I mean, you just talked through five or six key stakeholder relationships at Uber. Empathy was the big problem with almost with all of them. of them. Yeah. Right. Interesting. I've been thinking a lot about those components myself and it really you can exercise those on an individual level as well every day, right? So which one of those things do you think business leaders struggle with the most? It's a great question. We're, we're collecting data on that now, so we're going to put an app out to the public so we can confirm our own observation. I mean, we've done this work with thousands of people at this point. Tens of thousands, yeah. yeah. I don't know if I have seen a discernible pattern. I mean, I can tell you one thing, that if you just look at men, men are no more likely to have authenticity, logic, or empathy as a wobble. If you can combine this with intelligence tests... People that are high on intelligent tests tend Analytic to... Analytic intelligence. I just analy- want a, a shout you. out to all the beautiful <laughs> forms of intelligence in the world. <laughs> if you're high on analytic intelligence test, empathy tends to be your wobble. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've found those things, but in terms of for leaders, I don't think we have found a systematic pattern. Yeah. I mean, you were saying in the car ride over that we see people talk about their authenticity wobbles less frequently. But I'm also a little suspicious of the, the diagnosis. I think that's a harder one. If you're struggling with self-awareness, then it's a harder one to observe. Yeah. So let's talk about authenticity for yeah. a moment. You know, I think it's difficult for people to be their authentic self because you're a bit guarded in the workplace. You're not sure how much of yourself you should give away. 
Um, and there's the natural tendency for a business leader to want to have everybody on board, you know, kind of speaking the same language in many ways. So how do you balance that as a business leader, even a professional, in being your authentic self? This one's super tricky. You remember, if you doubt my empathy, my logic, or my authenticity, you're not going to trust me. And if you don't trust me, you're unlikely to give me stretch goals. And if you're unlikely to give me stretch goals, you're unlikely to promote me as fast, et cetera, et cetera. And then you're going to get super bummed about the demographic tendencies of the senior team. Mm -hmm. So it's a big, big deal. Authenticity tends to be co-located. Authenticity wobble tends to be co-located with the underrepresented minorities in a group. So this is super important. If I'm an other for Mm -hmm. whatever reason, I'm gay in a room full of straight people, whatever it is, I either got the coaching or got the good idea on my own that it's probably a good idea to fit in. But if I fit in, well, we can sniff out in an instinct that you're not authentic. And then everything I just said happened. So the most important thing about authenticity is those of us that are comfortable, we're going to be authentic. Our job is to set the conditions for those of us that are underrepresented to also bring their amazing, unique, authentic selves to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll share a personal story as an proud authenticity wobbler, <laughs> reformed authenticity wobbler. <laughs> uh, in a previous life, I did a lot of fundraising in in rooms of all-male venture capitalists where I was the only woman, I was the only queer person who hadn't like been in the room to you know deliver lunch or... Uh, <laughs> So when I started that journey, uh, I was super intimidated by that context in every every part of it. Uh, and it wasn't going so well in the beginning. And one of the issues in retrospect was that I wasn't uh, engendering a particular amount of trust. And part of the reason that was happening is because I was getting up at the front of the room and playing a role that I thought they wanted to see, this kind of front in the room like macho, you know, like, um, you know, flamboyant early stage company builder. Uh, And that wasn't who I was. And particularly at an early stage, it's all about trust. It's all about intuition. It's do I want to take a leap of faith on this human being and give them a serious amount of capital and go on this ride with them? And because I was pretending to be someone else, I wasn't able to build those connections. One of the things that helped for me is that I started talking about my son. You know, he was the inspiration for the company. And even as just a mind trick for me to remind me to show up three-dimensionally, I would I started putting pictures of him in the deck, and it would just remind me of my own humanity um, and remind me to show up. And, and the tone and tenor of those conversations changed very quickly. And that's a big part of our message is that these, these things are so fixable. Oh but you have to be willing to look in the mirror a little bit and really – do the work to figure out what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. It's a confidence issue, too. You have to be comfortable in your own shoes, so to speak, right? Yeah. Okay. I want to add a note on confidence, which I think is is a little bit overrated um, in, in business, in our experience. I think our message is to put yourself out there and create the context and relationships where you can actually go beyond your skis trusting that you have a team behind you and with you willing to support you when you stumble. And so our part of our message is around trust is go out and build the relationships that allow you to go further than you could ever go on your own. And that's about faith and about grace and about 
being okay with your own strengths and weaknesses much more than it is about an intrinsic idea of confidence. That's really inspiring. So I wanted to ask you about the, the consortium, the leadership consortium, which prepares women and people of color for senior leadership. Tell me about that. Yeah, Francis and I actually started the company together. We have a fantastic team running the organization now. And it came out of, of our observation partly in Silicon Valley and in my world. I was in biotech before I decided to focus on this full time. And that there, was, there were demographic patterns in people who were given the permission to succeed and giving themselves the permission to succeed. And in many cases, there were small barriers to their success. We call them, you know, pebbles, not boulders. And we partner with HBX Live, which is Harvard Business School's online classroom. And we bring fantastic professors into the room and we partner with best-in-class companies who send us their women and people of color who they know can be wildly successful. And they let us work with them for a couple months, send them through a, an awesome leadership curriculum. So, Anne, what are some of the common pebbles that you see? Any thematic pebbles? Oh, so many thematic pebbles. <laughs> the metric I like to talk about is swagger. My greatest hope is that people walk away from this program with more swagger and, and confidence and willingness to take up space in the world than they had when they came in. Nice. And I, I think it's a very reliable proxy for leadership impact. When we teach strategy today, it's different than when strategy was taught 10 years ago, because 10 years ago you probably had the art of war on your bedside table, and today you should have the power of collaboration on your strategy <laughs> bedside table. So we're, mm-hmm. we're doing a lot of up-to-date things. But yeah, I think it's the interpersonal swagger, the reflection, and knowing that you have a team so that you can go out and do it. Importantly, companies had to convince us that they would invest in these folks if we worked well with them. Mm-hmm. And so it's really also this beautiful, virtuous cycle. So I no longer believe the company wants to address its DNI situation. It's no longer a true statement that, oh, I tried and I couldn't do it. Sorry, there's a solution out there. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one other pattern that we observe is that for a lot of women and people of color, we we put our heads down and we excel in one domain because we think that's what we're supposed to do. You know, I call it the Girl Scout inside of me. You know, they they told me I was in marketing, so I'm going to crush marketing. And yet as you move through, you move higher in an organization and into senior leadership roles, you really have to be able to pick your head up and develop a point of view on all functions in the organization. So a big part of our curriculum is to give you exposure to the domains where we think every senior leader today needs to have some intuition. Mm -hmm. How do you think we're doing as a world on diversity inclusion? You hear a lot more about it lately, right? So it's on everybody's radar. Do you think we're seeing good progress in the area? I will say I don't think we have to spend any more money than we are today, and I don't think we have to pay any more attention than we do today. I sadly see a lot of wasted effort. We do some things that are check the box and make us feel good. So you'll give HR a list and say, compliance-wise, go make sure everybody does this, these three trainings. I don't think that helps at all. But if you do programs that are actually helping diverse folks move up in the organization, I think that will work. I think Workday is a magnificent organization for the efforts they've made on diversity and inclusion. So we certainly have enough best practice examples. And if we'd stop doing the defensive compliance and instead do the optimistic, what's getting in the way of a woman 
or a person of color being in a leadership role, and then let's change that in six months. Nice. Yeah. Anne? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're very practical, um, glass-half-full people. Mm-hmm. One of our observations is that these are really solvable problems. You know, I mean, they, they're, they're so all-encompassing, and they're, they hit at the core of our identities, and it's easy to get overwhelmed by how much work there is to do. But when you really get down to the things that are in the way of women and people of color or any, anyone who identifies as other in any way succeeding in your organization, it's usually very solvable problems. And we see in company after company that what it really takes is a willingness to ask the questions and own the patterns and look in a clear-eyed way at the data and then figure out what are we going to do to fix it. It requires no more audacity and creativity than what you brought to disrupting that incredible industry. It's not harder than fixing the supply chain. <laughs> it's not, it's, <laughs> right. You know, Francis has an operations background. You know, <laughs> not, I, I am not. a very practical company builder. This this isn't any harder than no. the other problems you solve all day, every day. We but just you get have all to be willing out. to look. Yeah, we get all weirded out. <laughs> yeah. So, Francis, what else have you seen work in the area of diversity and inclusion? You know, it, now that we've gone through so many companies, it really requires data. You don't want the data to tell us what to do, but we need data to know. And if we break the data up into selection, development, promotion, and retention, we're going to be able to figure it out. And so for selection, we get to find out, are women not applying, or are the women that are applying not saying yes? Let's say they show up. The women are here, but they don't make it. They churn out early. We have a development problem. They're actually developed well, but we don't promote them. We have a promotion problem. Turns out we actually promote them, but then they get taken away by someone else. We have a retention problem. I think that we have micro problems all over the organization. And each one of the things I just mentioned has a different prescription. So we need the micro diagnoses of what's going on. So I'm pretty sure that the micro problem that's going on in tech is very different than the micro problem that's going on in sales. And so to think that we can have one size fits all as a solution for DNI isn't going to work. You've been listening to Francis Fry and Ann Morris today on the Workday podcast. Ann and Francis, thank you so much for joining us today. Deep pleasure. Thank you, Mary. It's been our pleasure to be here. This is Mary Hayes Weir. Thank you for listening to the Workday podcast. Mm-hmm.